This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 50, Tuesday, August the 2nd, 1983. Today it's our privilege to have a very good friend of Cal Seaton here, John Stafford. John has a very varied background and a most interesting one. As of yesterday, he finished his work with the Department of Interior, and I'm going to ask John to describe something of his work there, something of his background. He's been in the military, in investment, in uh, quite a few things. John, it's good to have you here. Thank you, Rush. It's really beautiful here in uh, Velocito. Um Well, with the department, I was uh, director of the Office of Hearings and Appeals. I came about a year ago, and... Uh, when I was getting comfortably ensconced in uh, Florida, but had decided to take off uh, a year's sabbatical and go to seminary. And I actually turned the job down a couple of times until I found out I could go to uh, seminary at night at Dominion Theological Institute in McLean, Virginia. It's based at McLean Presbyterian Church. So uh, I did welcome the opportunity to come up and... Uh, work in the Reagan administration, work for Jim Watt, who's just a fabulous fellow and, uh, as you know, a staunch Christian. And uh, the job I had <clears throat> was um, um, in the office of the secretary. I had a staff of 125 uh, people, of which 42 were administrative judges and administrative law judges, about 20 attorneys, and then a number of support people. And uh, basically what we uh, did in that uh, office was to uh, make uh, decisions for the secretary that he didn't have time to make. Most of them were of the important uh, and then a lot of routine uh, decisions, uh, whereas uh, the secretary himself is concerned with the more urgent and politically tinged uh, decisions. Uh, I believe we did upwards of Oh, 4,000 or more a year, and um, it's a it's a pretty fine office, and I was actually quite pleased with the uh, high quality of the uh, professional bureaucrats that I had working for me. But of course, as uh, is true with any uh, bureaucratic organization, be it in the public sector or the private sector, uh, there were some problems and some. Uh, institutional barriers which we tried to overcome and uh, uh, it's quite a, a frustrating fight but uh, I like to think we did fight the good fight and hopefully accomplish some small modicum of good. I understand to improve efficiency you uh, were trying to make some very extensive cuts that would have saved the taxpayers some money but you ran into a bit of trouble there. Do you yes. want to tell us about it? <laughs> well, um, there probably isn't a justification for more than about 75 or 80 uh, people in this office where there are actually 125 uh, budgeted. Uh, but there's just no way that uh, with the civil service regulations being what they are and the political realities uh, internal to the department and external, that uh, would really allow you to do that. So I was pleased to uh, have uh, tried to save uh, about a million dollars out of a little over $5 million budget and uh, actually returning to the department uh, uh, 400000 outright and by taking some other actions uh, avoided spending another uh, three or $400,000. So, you know, we fought as good a fight as we could, and I guess the frustrating part is that you're just not really free to have the uh, kind of management control that you normally would have in the private sector and really should have in the uh, government sector. Ann Burford uh, remarked that uh, it is illegal for someone to return budgeted money and uh, this poses a further problem, does it not? <laughs> well, I didn't have that particular uh, problem because Jim Watt is so smart using uh, the budget to uh, drive uh, his policy. And so uh, what we didn't use 
uh, he could reprogram uh, mm -hmm. to do uh, the things that uh, he's trying to do there uh, within the department. But in terms of turning it back to the Congress, I don't know whether it's illegal or not, but I'm sure that uh, uh, the vast majority of the people in Washington would be against uh, doing anything like that. And uh, I just was uh, further sensitized, I guess, not so much shocked or amazed, but further sensitized uh, to the... Uh, uh, you might call it the fantasy reality <laughs> of Washington, that the people there do live in a fantasy world. Um, they seem to think that or believe that money does grow on trees, that there's a cornucopia of, uh, of an under uh, ever-increasing uh, 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 amounts of money, and it's just their obligation to spend it, and they don't think of it in terms of uh, being uh, the taxpayer's money or individual citizens uh, uh, having to dig in their pockets and forego uh, various things in their lives that they would like to have uh, to come up with the tax revenues to support these programs. They just think of it in terms of, uh, well, the money is there and there's more going to be more and it's up to us to spend it. So they're interested in spending and their whole orientation is towards spending and they don't have uh, the feeling that this is uh, money which in any way is held in trust uh, or that should be handled very carefully because it is other people's money. They consider it to be their money. Let me uh, throw in something here parenthetically. Uh, before going to Washington, John published an investment letter which was the most expensive one in the country and had a very select uh, clientele and uh, John is knowledgeable in this field. John, uh, I think uh, our people would be very interested if you told us something about the economics of the drug industry today as it affects the monetary situation of this country. Right. I don't uh, hold myself out really as an expert in anything. I, I consider myself a student of a number of different things, and one of which is uh, the area of money and monetary policy. And uh, to do that, you have to be familiar with the banking system and how the Federal Reserve operates. And, of course, one of the things that uh, drives uh, interest rates is uh, what the Federal Reserve is doing with the money supply, or particularly not so much... M1, M2, et cetera, M through M15, which, by the way, have been growing at astronomical rates, contrary to everything that uh, you hear from uh, the official spokesman of the Federal Reserve uh, over the last uh, two years, really since uh, late October of 1981. And uh, one of the things that I look at very carefully for guidance on the economic and financial markets is uh, uh, net free or borrowed reserves. In other words, uh, how liquid is the banking system? And uh, if you have, for instance, uh, uh, $6 billion in uh, net borrowed reserves, that's generally associated with very high interest rates. And we did have that two or three years ago where the banks were in a net uh, uh, borrowed position of about $6 billion, and that was associated with a prime rate of upwards of 20%. Uh, recently, the prime rate has dropped down closer to uh, 11 and a half or 12 and uh, in some places even 10, 10 and a half. And uh, this coincides with a net free position in the uh, bank's uh, banking system of about, uh, I think they got somewhere around two or $300 million in the plus side. So the uh, liquidity of the banking system is a very important thing. Well, where does liquidity come from? It comes from a lot of different sources, uh, but one of which is uh, deposits which are placed uh, with uh, individual uh, commercial banks, which, by the way, I don't think really are in the free enterprise system. They really have become, because of excessive regulation and uh, uh, mutuality of interest interlock with the government, uh, arms of the government. Uh, so I look at them, uh, at them the same way as I would any uh, government agency, not as a private institution, even though they still pose as private institutions. Uh, in any event, uh, I guess a, a sort of a, a hard way of saying it uh, would be that uh, 
whether they know this or not or whether they want to be or not, uh, the people in the federal government have a vested interest in the continuance of the drug trade uh, because uh, so much money is uh, being raised through that enterprise, illegal enterprise, and uh, placed in uh, the banking system on deposit with the various banks. This is particularly true. I saw some statistics about two years ago when I was down in Florida, and we're very sensitive to the drug problem down there, which showed that uh, there were so many tens of billions of dollars being put on deposit with the uh, so-called commercial banks uh, in Florida that uh, there was a huge surplus of something like $3 billion dollars uh, in free reserves in the Federal Reserve Southeast District. And that was primarily uh, due to the fact that uh, huge amounts of uh, money were being laundered through uh, banks in Florida. Uh, and uh, what the, the result of that was that instead of the, that the entire U.S. banking system was being liquefied by the existence of this money in this one particular district. So that uh, if this, uh, one way to say it, I guess, would be that if this were not true, we might perhaps have had 25 or 30 percent prime rate rather than a terrible 20 percent prime rate uh, back two or three years ago uh, had it not been for the existence of this drug money. And that probably would have either brought down the banking system or had an, have had an even uh, greater negative impact, and it probably would have uh, produced a much more severe recession uh, than the one that we actually had. So uh, we've gotten ourselves, I guess the way to look at this, in a, in a terrible box. Uh, we're caught between a rock and a hard place, which is what I was talking about in my September 7th, 1981 letter in particular, and uh, that we really uh, don't have too much room to maneuver. So we're very dependent economically upon the drug trade. Yes. Sad as that may be. Yes. Which means that uh, to endanger that drug trade would be to endanger the banking system and the economy generally. Right. That's a, a reality. It's an unpleasant reality. It's one that a lot of people wouldn't admit to, but uh, the way I see it, it's a fact, just as uh, the fact that the greedy and incompetent uh, bankers and the, uh, I call them the, uh, the nine brothers, um, who for years have been in bed with his seven sisters, uh, the big banks uh, in New York and elsewhere, Chicago and here on the West Coast, um, that these uh, bankers, through greed and incompetence and stupidity, have lent out all this money to the third world, and therefore the administration is placed in a position of, uh, of going to the Congress and asking for $8.5 billion uh, in additional contributions to the International Monetary Fund because they say if we don't, uh, the whole system might start coming apart. Which it would. Well, it may or it may not. Uh, I don't think that it necessarily would because I think that uh, if you removed uh, uh, greedy and stupid and incompetent uh, businessmen uh, who were being subsidized in many ways by the government, uh, from the economy that this would allow entrepreneurs and people who are smarter and better uh, to do uh, the same job if that job did need to be done uh, at lower cost and that would have a beneficial effect on the economy even though the immediate effect for a few weeks or a few months uh, might appear to be negative but uh, sometimes uh, the best thing as a matter of fact I think most of the time <laughs> the best thing to do is to bite the bullet Yes. and do the right thing regardless of what appear to be the short-term uh, consequences. So uh, I think that uh, either some of these people are just unknowledgeable about past economic history uh, or uh, have frightened themselves or are deliberately frightening, uh, trying to frighten everyone else into thinking that uh, this is the only way that we can go when, in fact, uh, I believe that if we did the right thing, and especially if we trusted in the Lord, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is my favorite scripture verse, uh, that uh, if he saw us doing the right thing, he would take care of us. Yes. 
That's what I hoped you would say, John. <laughs> well, you know, there's an old proverb that uh, birds of a feather flock together. So you've got the federal government, the third world countries, and the drug dealers in bed together economically. It's sad to say it's true. Mm -hmm. And uh, the one who's paying the price is the uh, good citizen who still goes on paying his taxes. Exactly. Because we're having, uh, well, how extensive is the uh, sub rosa in economy that is avoiding taxes, that is underground in one form or another? Do you want to discuss that? Well, briefly, I'm not really an expert in this area. I just uh, uh, have read uh, about it over the last few years. Uh, I was in Europe a number of years ago, and I know that at that time uh, this was uh, sort of the norm. And so, uh, uh, as I understand it, uh, our situation uh, is uh, uh, sort of retarded time-wise vis-a-vis Europe. I understand that uh, upwards of 50 or 60 percent of the Italian economy uh, takes place uh, in the underground, uh, upwards of 40 to 50 percent of the French economy, and I have seen some statistics uh, ranging anywhere from uh, 15 to 25 percent of GNP uh, in the United States uh, takes place in uh, the so-called underground economy. Um, I would think that the important thing is to recognize the trend and the direction uh, that this is going rather than you know, arguing over uh, what exactly the percentage is today, I don't think that's particularly important. Uh, but uh, I do see this growing because as the government becomes more and more lawless and we have more and more of what we have had the last 50 years in particular, a government of, uh, of men, not laws, that uh, more and more people will at least, uh, as Francis Schaeffer has pointed out in the Christian Manifesto and many of his talks, uh, have uh, the development, the continuation of the passive revolt generally against government and uh, hopefully will be smart enough and with the Lord's help to uh, take effective action uh, soon uh, to do the right thing uh, so that we don't go all the way down that path toward uh, active revolt. Uh, I think that that would have terribly negative consequences, and I think just as the Civil War was an unnecessary war, that that would be uh, unnecessary to have violence in this country uh, uh, in terms of active revolt. So, uh, again, uh, if we, I think if we uh, have the guts to face up to the realities and uh, of the situation in all of these different areas, and then uh, once having done that, say, okay, let's take intelligent and effective action to uh, to deal with uh, where we've gotten ourselves, uh, that uh, I have great faith in the common sense uh, and, uh, and, uh, and integrity of the American people. And uh, I see lots of good signs, actually. Uh, I've been accused over the years of being a doom and gloomer. But uh, that's not true. I'm, I'm a, a perennial optimist. It's just that I'm also a realist. So I tell people quite openly uh, what I see the truth to be, the reality to be, and uh, encourage them uh, to do the right thing. And as in my own life, it sometimes takes years to be willing to face up to something and maybe even a further number of years to uh, build up the guts to uh, actually take effective action. So uh, in that sense, I'm uh, patient uh, because I've had to learn that in my own life. Um, but I think that's really the key. And again, uh, uh, in the long run, we're talking about prayer and trusting in the Lord. In the short run, uh, I think there are a number of things that uh, we could do uh, which would uh, be... Uh, uh, not only good effective action, but also send a signal that uh, we were putting on the armor, as Ephesians 6 is talking about, and preparing for the battle. And one thing that uh, on that point that is going on right now I think is very important is to uh, stop the IMF funding bill in the House. And I see where uh, the administration and the leadership of the, of the House are scrambling around uh, now trying to see how to get that uh, 
bill through the House because they found that there is substantial opposition to the point, uh, hopefully, of a majority against it. And uh, anything that uh, your subscribers can do or the good citizens of the United States can do uh, to stop this monstrosity and uh, rip off of the American taxpayer, I think, would be very beneficial, not only in terms of the actual uh, uh, event itself, but also in terms of the signal that it would send that, that we're making uh, a major shift in the right direction. The thing that is interesting to me is, of course, all over the country, uh, further funding of the IMF and of the third world countries is very unpopular. But I did not expect Congress to react negatively to it. So I think your suggestion that uh, those who listen express their feelings strongly on this issue is a very good one because it will spell the death of the dollar ultimately and its damage to our future will be very, very great. You did, yes. On that uh, point, there are a couple of other angles which aren't even being discussed in terms of this IMF bailout. One of which is that it's not only a threat to the sovereignty of the countries which are being bailed out, but it's also a threat to the sovereignty of the United States and its continuance uh, if we still are one uh, as a uh, constitutional republic. Uh, and I say this uh, in light even of a letter to the Wall Street Journal from a gentleman in Guatemala who was begging uh, the people to do what we've just uh, suggested uh, here in the United States because he didn't want the uh, uh, people of Guatemala and the government of Guatemala to become more dependent on the IMF. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a direct threat to their own sovereignty and independence. And to the extent that the IMF uh, uh, does become uh, de facto, if not de jure, a, um, a world central bank, uh, that's a threat to the sovereignty of the United States as well. So, you know, it's not just an economic and financial event. It's also an extremely important political event going to the very question of, uh, of, uh, of really imperialism, if you want to talk mm -hmm. about that. And, uh, you know, who is running the show, whether it's the people of each country who can maintain their own diversity and uh, uniqueness uh, of their system, uh, or whether it's going to be some uh, a group uh, of self-alleged, self-appointed elitists uh, who are going to uh, try to tell everybody else what to do, mm -hmm. according to their uh, humanistic uh, plan. You cited as a text for our time certain verses in Proverbs. Do you want to comment on that, those verses? Well, I just I know they've been extremely important in my own life. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, as I remember it from, I think, the NIV, is, uh, says, uh, Trust in the Lord, lean not on your own understanding, walk in His ways, and He will make your path straight. So you can even look that, at that in, uh, in four parts, uh, even though, of course, it's completely uh, connected together. Uh, the first part, trust in the Lord, uh, again, I'm a fairly new Christian of just about three years, even though I was raised uh, Roman Catholic and I think got a very fine uh, education for the better part of 20 years uh, through the Catholic schools. Uh, but then I lapsed, fell away for many years, and uh, just uh, three years ago last June, I uh, got right with God, as Dr. Kennedy down at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church uh, likes to put it. And um, without going into my testimony, this particular verse was very important to me. And in 1980, I had a tremendous lesson for a year in this area of trust. And then my seminary studies have shown me in my Genesis and Ephesians class and John class uh, in particular that um, that really is the underlying basis for uh, the relationship between God and man and really the, the theme of the Old and New Covenant. Uh, trusting in the Lord. And if you look at the great uh, patri uh, patriarchs of the Old Testament in particular, uh, they were men who, who trusted in the Lord. Abraham uh, with his son Isaac and the sacrifice or potential sacrifice. Uh, Noah, who you know went on building this stupid ark on dry land for a hundred years or so. Uh, uh, Job. Uh, in each case, uh, these men uh, did what God said because they believed God and uh, 
in every case there were tremendous blessings. And of course the contrasts were, you know, Adam and right down the line where uh, they turned away from what God said and did uh, what they thought was best. And uh, of course that always leads to evil and chaos. And I think it's really perhaps the... Uh, the underlying uh, uh, difficulty in all of human history that we try to uh, not do what God says. We try to shove him out of the picture and uh, put ourselves up and try to do what we think is best. And that, I think, is the main reason that we have this uh, chaos and disaster and uh, lack of peace and brotherhood and understanding that uh, uh, so many people complain about. Um, uh, doing what uh, what God says we should do, and I know your ministry has been very much geared to this, and many of the books that you've written, the institutes and others, uh, have uh, really stressed this point, Rush, that uh, uh, just do with God what God says and trust him to take care of the rest. And I've uh, always had a high view of the sovereignty of God, and the more I learn, the higher and higher it gets. <laughs> And uh, fortunately, the more humble I get, and uh, to see that uh, God really does have total control, and uh, our job is uh, to get our pride and ego out of the way so he can do his work. As my old pappy used to say, uh, uh, yours is not uh, to question why, yours is but to do or die. Mm-hmm. Your father was in the military, wasn't yes, he? Yes, he's a retired Marine colonel, as is my uh, Uncle and also my cousin just got back from uh, nine months in Beirut, was promoted to lieutenant colonel and given three years in London with his family, which I think is a pretty decent uh, thing to do, consider the tough uh, action uh, that he had to deal with uh, in uh, Beirut. And you yourself have been in the military. Yes, I uh, have a long uh, career. Uh, matter of fact, I was in three different branches of the service, if you include my Air Force ROTC at uh, Maryland. Uh, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marine Corps, and we lived on an Army base as well when my dad was CEO of the Marine Barracks that guards the National Security Agency. I can't understand why everybody's getting so uh, worked up about the National Security Agency because, you know, I've known about them for 20 or more years. <laughs> uh, but uh, I am retired from Marine Corps Reserve uh, with 21 years longevity, even though uh, I don't uh, have the 20 years necessary for a pension. At the time that I retired, I was engaged to a woman with four children and had my business going. And I, on the one hand, on the temporal level, uh, didn't feel that uh, I wanted to be called back uh, to uh, serve as many of the men were after World War II for Korea Mm -hmm. to really interrupt my life just at the time it was about ready to hopefully get planted and stable. Uh, And also I felt, and I was a vice chairman of the Reagan Finance Committee uh, during the 1980 campaign, that uh, one of the best reasons for uh, electing Reagan over Carter was that either under Reagan or Carter, we may well go to war, but at least under Reagan, we had a chance to win. <laughs> and <laughs> I, But at the time, uh, this was January of, uh, well, December of, 80, uh, of 79 and uh, January of 80 when I retired, uh, all the polls showed Carter winning. And so I just didn't want to... Uh, serve under Carter uh, in an active duty military role. So there were a number of reasons, but uh, but I did put in my 21 years, plus I felt that really I had another 18 or so as, uh, as a Marine Corps uh, junior, as they call them, uh, in the family. So I figured I'd put in the better part of 39 or 40 years, and that was, that was fine. Mm-hmm. I still go to the Congressional Marines breakfasts and so forth and so on, and the 8th and I parades, and keep my hand in with Marine Corps activities, the Marine Corps ball every year uh, in November, but uh, I've basically done my service. But I think I did learn a lot, not only from my father, but from my Marine Corps training about preparing for battle and defending what you think is uh, important in life. And uh, I'm finding that without consciously thinking about it, a lot of these principles I'm able to apply in uh, Christian work and uh, in uh, the financial uh, field. Uh, uh, I know there was a book which I just bought another copy of uh, recently by Gerald Loeb. It came out during the 50s, and I guess it was passed around, uh, given by Merrill Lynch to its customers in the 60s. It was called uh, uh, The Battle for Investment Survival, 
And I think really that concept applies in many areas of our life. Uh, nutrition, I think Adele Davis really makes this point about uh, good nutrition. You're in a battle for, for good health. In the financial world, you're certainly in a battle. And as Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 in particular and elsewhere, we're in a battle uh, as far as our spiritual life is concerned. So many different areas in which these uh, concepts of uh, um, which some people might label as pure military really have much wider application. Mm-hmm. You also went to law school somewhere along the line. Oh, yes, I slipped that <laughs> in. Uh, I never really uh, wanted to be a lawyer, but uh, I figured law school was a good place to... Uh, to learn. I really wanted to go to Notre Dame and uh, take theology and philosophy, and I had given serious consideration to uh, the priesthood over the years, especially when I was uh, Blessed Sacrament uh, uh, School in Washington, D.C., Chevy Chase Circle uh, back in the 50s, and then at St. Anselm's Abbey School, taught by the good Benedictine Fathers uh, in the 50s, but uh, then I had discovered girls (laughs) <laughs> and uh, as I went to these CYO dances, I realized I could never be a priest. Uh, but, uh, yes, it's true that uh, that I did end up at law school at the University of Washington. And uh, as I was telling you the other day, I'm thinking about suing them for uh, educational malpractice because uh, the year that I got there, they brought in a uh, fellow who was from uh, Eastern uh, uh, Ivy League uh, genre or of that genre and uh, I think that was the year they eliminated Blackstone and brought in HLA Hart, Sachs and all these secular humanist types legal positivists and I knew they were some, doing something to my mind but at the time I didn't have the tools to know exactly what it was all about so I was at a great disadvantage uh, but uh, uh, over the years the Lord has helped me you know, work through that and I think I'm finally uh, falling in with uh, a good crowd here among the Christian Reconstructionists. But I know you've got some ideas or plans uh, mm-hmm. relating to uh, helping people like me had your work uh, been available and I had known about it uh, 20-some-odd years ago when I started law school. Now you know, if you'd gone to Notre Dame Law School, you would have gotten both theology and law. That's right, exactly. Mm-hmm. I would have gotten a combination. Which, of course, is the necessary combination, and that's why we're in trouble today. Because theology and law have been separated. Right. And theology and life have been separated. Mm -hmm. It's been made an abstract subject, unrelated to the everyday world. Exactly, which has got to lead to uh, total disaster, as uh, this uh, professor uh, Paul Kurtz and I were discussing the other day at the Institute on Religion and Democracy meeting. And... uh, it was actually a fairly uh, gentle uh, interplay, uh, uh, but I kept asking him why uh, he would uh, do things the hard way and uh, eliminate a great source of help to wit God uh, from his daily activity. Uh, you know, why not invite him in to help? And uh, I guess it goes back to that same old thing that befell Satan and befell Adam that uh, uh, our own pride just keeps us from uh, a willingness to do that. Yes, uh, those of you who are listening who don't know who Paul Kurtz is, he's head of the Humanist Association of the United States. And as John and I were discussing last night, these humanists believe in the greater miracles when they believe in evolution. (laughs) That's the greatest miracle anybody ever imagined. Exactly. And it's a myth. (laughs) It's a myth. (laughs) And we've just been systematically deceived and still are being... uh, about the evolution, uh, about evolution, uh, uh, and, you know, something that's really, uh, bad, that's part and parcel of that is, uh, the disingenuine, disingenuousness of the people who are involved. They just, they're not really telling the truth. Uh, the, the fact is that, uh, uh the theory of evolution is no more than a theory and perhaps not even an, an hypothesis. Uh, whereas if you watch public television, either Cosmos or any of these other series, yes. the one on Darwin or the one they had just this past winter, uh, they uh, talk about it as established fact. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really crazy because from what I can tell, uh, there has never been any proof of any missing links between uh, a change of species. And... Uh, 
So uh, I have come around to the view after sort of going along for so many years with the evolutionists because I never really uh, took the time to think about it specifically for myself. Uh, I'm taking the view now that uh, I'm going to believe the Bible uh, for so long as uh, as no one can prove it wrong. And uh, that's my starting point. And so far, I don't see anything that proves Scripture wrong on, let's say, the creation. And in fact, uh, what I have been learning, and I was just at a Philadelphia Bible College uh, two or three weeks ago for a, a seminar put on by the Institute for Creation Research, and that is that if anything, especially archaeology, is proving up the Bible. Uh, we're finding out that uh, the prophecies that were made hundreds of years in advance, even a thousand or more years in advance, say about the destruction of particular cities, are being found out to be absolutely uncannily accurate uh, by the uh, scientists who are doing the digging. Now that as of today you're a free man as far as uh, yeah, yeah. Washington, D.C. is concerned, I understand you are planning to write a book. True. Um, uh, I do want to finish in the month of August my uh, seminary studies at Dominion Theological Institute. I've been taking a full load of four courses uh, for this uh, summer semester. And then uh, next uh, fall I'm currently planning to go up to Grove City College and... Uh, um, work uh, for a doctorate uh, probably in Christianity and Civilization. Hans Senholtz has been after me about doing an economics for a couple of years. Uh, mostly it's an opportunity to, uh, again, take a sabbatical and do a lot of the reading that uh, I would like to do. But uh, I do have seven book titles uh, uh, that uh, of books that I would like to write, and one of which I've actually put uh, some time and effort into to establish an outline and actually fill it out in a few places and that book uh, would be called The Age of Irresponsibility and so in lieu of a standard thesis uh, they've suggested that uh, I write a book and I think that would be the book that I probably would write because I think that oh at least in the temporal sense if not more uh, uh, might be the underlying theme of uh, the modern age and particularly this century uh, just uh, uh, almost a total lack of responsibility uh, on the part of we as human beings in so many different areas of life. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, the comic strip Pogo, and uh, where Pogo, of course, is quoted the uh, famous phrase, uh, we have met the enemy and he is us. Yes. And uh, I think uh, we've become our own enemies because we have failed to be responsible and Again, I appreciate the work that you're doing because you're so showing people the scriptural and uh, theological basis for uh, how to be responsible and then going beyond that and saying, let's actually do it, rather than uh, just talking about that as an abstract concept, which, oh, we couldn't possibly implement in the modern age. Mm -hmm. We can and we must. Yes. Well, you know, uh, irresponsibility is a product of the fall of original sin. Mm -hmm. We're told in Genesis that when man sought to be his own God, determining good and evil for himself, his immediate reaction when confronted with his sin was irresponsibility. Adam told God, the woman thou gavest to me, yes. uh, to be with me. It's right. your fault. You <laughs> gave her to me. She did give me and I did eat. So it's God's fault and the woman's fault. Yeah. And the Eve said, the serpent did give me. Poor innocent thing that I am, how was I to know? I was deluded. The serpent did give me and I did eat. Both were irresponsible. And the deeper a society gets into sin, the deeper its sense of irresponsibility. So here we have an irresponsible world. We're in an irresponsible age. You know, in uh, two or three of my books, including a forthcoming one on uh, salvation and godly rule, I deal with the will to fiction that is so much a mark of our age. Right. We've never had an age that has saturated itself more in the world of its imagination through exactly. uh, novels and uh, through 
television, through films. Uh, we live in a, a dream world. More marriages are broken, I believe, by imagination than by reality. Absolutely. Uh, I picked up something that summed it up very well, the spousal gap or a spouse gap. And it said uh, something I had encountered over and over again. One of the problems in so many marriages, reason for uh, discontent, for adultery and uh, other things, is the ghostly lover. That is, the imaginary person they want. And the real man and the real woman never meet their expectation. Exactly. People face the world with this irresponsible imagination, and the world never meets it, and they run more deeply into the, their imagination, so that we are par excellence in an age of irresponsibility. I think that's an excellent subject to deal with. Well, thank you. I think you actually had a book out that, uh, since I bought so many of them but haven't had a chance to uh, read them all yet, uh, A Flight from Humanity. Yes. And uh, maybe you could come out with one that uh, is entitled uh, A Flight from Reality. Good subject. Hmm. Maybe sometime uh, I will. I have a book that uh, I finished a few years ago, and we haven't had the funding to publish it yet, entitled The Death of Meaning. Yes, right. You see, our world, by abandoning God, has abandoned meaning. What I do is to trace how this has happened in philosophy mm -hmm. with its implications for everyday life. Yes. And with the death of meaning, uh, responsibility no longer has any meaning. Exactly. So why bother to be responsible if it doesn't matter? Yes. And when you have a belief that every man is his own God, and that's what every person outside of Christ believes, that he is his own God. Right. And... Uh, Sartre said uh, that his problem was not God, it was his neighbor. Yes. Because if he was God, then his neighbor had to be the devil. Yeah, scapegoating again. Yes. So everybody withdraws from themselves. And uh, I think it's in this forthcoming book, I describe hell as a place of total isolation. No one talks to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Each one is his own world. And that's in stark contrast to the fellowship of the Trinity and why the Trinity is so yes. important. Right. Total communion. Right. And our goal, total communion with the triune God and with one another. And uh, Sartre, you know, wrote something about hell entitled No Exit. Oh, yes. It's a play. And all these people are sitting around in hell. They are talking to themselves... They wonder if the door is locked and if they can open it and go out. But all they do is talk to themselves. No one does anything. No one tries the door. No one communicates. They're talking at each other, but they're only talking to themselves. Well, since I haven't really thought this through, but uh, even though I'm a Christian, I'm a fan of the Eagles. Uh, Rock group, <laughs> and uh, they have a. We'll forgive you. Okay, they have a a, a song called Hotel California, and uh, being here in California, I've been thinking about this. There is a verse in there. I think at the end it says, uh, they go to the uh, night clerk, and he says, "You can check out, but you can never leave." Yes, very good. At the Hotel California. Well, well, going back to this concept of uh, irresponsibility, I didn't, I wasn't even aware of it, but apparently it's been brought to my attention in the book out, uh, which connects uh, irresponsibility with mental illness and says really yes. that the root of mental illness is irresponsibility. Mm -hmm. It's just another way of saying it. Exactly. Uh, what we call mental illness is irresponsibility and an attempt to escape from reality because it doesn't meet your hopes. Mm -hmm. So you run away from facts. 
You run away into the recesses of your own mind and try to escape those things that you don't want to solve. And, of course, people are doing that without going into mental illness. They're doing it by getting wrapped up in any number of activities and things which have as their function escapism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, of course, fiction, TV, films... A rock music <laughs> couldn't avoid getting that in. I only listen to the Eagles yeah. once every two months. <laughs> well, since you confessed, you're forgiven. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's absolutely true. I guess uh, this is one of the reasons I've been somewhat of a square peg in a round hole in, in my life because I've just never been that interested in any of those uh, things that... Uh, you mentioned uh, especially fiction. I just have not been a reader of fiction. Uh, mm -hmm. So that everything I put my hands on is uh, historical or uh, mm -hmm. or nonfiction. And uh, maybe there's too much of an yeah. imbalance in that direction, yeah. but still, uh, that's the way I've been oriented. Well, fiction can be a confrontation with reality, but as fiction has developed, it's uh, anti-Christian, an anti-reality, therefore. Hmm. So modern fiction is very evil in that respect. Now, a work of a novel like uh, Crime and Punishment is a tremendous confrontation with reality. Mm -hmm. Because here you have a student in uh, Crime and Punishment who is an unbeliever who believes that uh, the idea that God has given man a conscience and that man is inescapably accountable to God. All this is fiction. He kills an old woman. His belief is her life is worth no more than that of a louse or a flea. Technically, he believes it's uh, meaningless. Actually, if anything, it's a plus. He's eliminated someone worthless from society. But his conscience bothers him. Hmm. And that's the thing that uh, horrifies him. His conscience bothers him. And uh, he cannot take the fact that he feels guilty. Hmm. He uh, has an encounter with a, a girl, Sonia, a prostitute, who's been driven into prostitution by the poverty of her family. She knows she's a sinner. And by that awareness, she is stronger than he is. Hmm. Well, now, that is not fiction in the modern sense. It's a novel. But it's a novel that gives us a confrontation with reality. I know that when I read it in my university days, uh, another student I knew, a philosophy major... A militant atheist was also reading it. And he was so passionately involved with Raskolnikov, the student murderer, and so convinced that Raskolnikov's thesis was right, that he was thinking as Raskolnikov. He had vicariously killed that old woman with Raskolnikov because he believed it's right and good. We are walking uh, down the street one day discussing some of these ideas after lunch, and we rounded a corner, and there was a cop standing there. And Dick ducked back around the corner. <laughs> he had so thoroughly identified himself with the murderer, Raskolnikov, that he reacted like a murderer. And he began to swear, and he said, I'm going to quit reading that book. I'm going to quit reading that book, and I'm getting out of that course, which he did. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Well, yes. I guess the, uh, what you were saying, this uh, sense of conscience is a tremendous threat to our desire to uh, uh, put a, uh, an overly high value on reason mm -hmm. and rationality. The thing that man cannot ever escape, no matter how much he tries, is the fact that he is created in the image of God. 
and all his being is revelational of God. Everything in man cries out in its witness to God. In several books by men who left the Soviet Union, as well as in conversation with one or two whom I've met, the thing that comes through is that some of these particularly vicious uh, KGB men and prison camp torturers and the like, when they start drinking, their conscience begins to scream out because their self-control goes, and with it their conscience is telling them what they are. Hmm. Very, very powerful uh, witness. You know, that's interesting what you uh, just said. It, it triggered a thought, I think it was in uh, The Freeman uh, some months ago that I read a piece that uh, had to do with uh, the importance of names and how totalitarian states always try to substitute numbers for names. And maybe what they're trying to do, along with that story you told me about the three nuns, is to try to eliminate any obvious uh, uh, aspect or characteristic of... Uh, of man that uh, would be uh, a revelation of his creator. Uh, if you strip him of uh, yes. all of these things which speak of God, uh, it's a way of bolstering your own atheism. And uh, again, in my classes, I hadn't recognized this before, uh, I'm beginning to learn about the great importance of names and naming yes. and how God, you know, uses that and works with that. I mean, changed Abraham's name. Uh, he, uh, 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 Jesus uh, changed uh, Matthew's name mm -hmm. and so forth and so on and uh, in doing that I guess along with the, the thought that I first expressed there's the further thought that uh, the people who are, are doing this are trying to substitute themselves for God yes exactly and you see besides trying to eliminate the identifying mark of names which goes back to Genesis and the fact that God created man in his image and named him. And that he and then gave him the right to name the animals. Exactly. Which was an exercise of dominion and control. Right. So now, with DNA research and the genetic re-engineering of man that they plan to do, they have openly stated in some instances that they are going to be the new gods. That hmm. They are going to remake man. So uh, their atheistic insanity is very, very plainly stated. Well, I think we're, you know, facing threats from a number of directions. And I think just as in military, you have to uh, uh, G2 the opposition. You have to know, you know, what your enemy's capabilities are, his intentions where he's coming from, what his plans are. And uh, I've always used this uh, concept that uh, the world is divided into various groups of people, two of which are those who like to tell other people what to do and those who don't. <laughs> and I generally fall into the latter category, uh, except when it comes to something like abortion or murder or theft, where I think God has said that uh, you know, man should take measures to control his fellow man for the protection of the innocent. Uh, not even so much for judgment, which is God's, but for the protection of the innocent. And I see uh, these people, uh, some well-meaning, uh, they're just not knowledgeable, uh, they haven't had the good fortune that we might have had to have been raised in a particular way and you know, learn uh, what we've learned of, of God's principles. Uh, but they have just decided to put uh, their ideas into practice and the fact that uh, they use force uh, to do that and the fact that they're pushing other people around and uh, forcing them to conform uh, to their ideas uh, just is not, uh, doesn't seem to be important to them. The ends justify the means and the end, mm -hmm. in their view, is, uh, is a good one and therefore, uh, who are the victims to complain? Yes. Well, with this kind of aggressive action all around us, I think we have to let people know that they cannot be armchair Christians. Right. They've Absolutely. got to be in the battle. We are in the critical period of all history, I believe, today. 
We have a worldwide economic crisis looming. We have a worldwide religious confrontation between anti-Christianity and Christianity. We have a worldwide military confrontation perhaps just ahead. We have a worldwide political confrontation as various elitist forces all over the world believe they know better than the rest of us and they're going to rule for us. Everywhere you look, you see things coming to ahead. And they've sold us on this uh, relativism uh, concept so that uh, we're put in an inferior position uh, ab initio where uh, we're afraid to oppose them because we've been told that uh, there is no clear distinction between good and evil and who are we to uh, uh, to say no to them because maybe their ideas are just as good as ours. Yes. And uh, I uh, don't mean to be partisan, uh, but uh, just recently I saw uh, George McGovern on uh, television, I think it was the CNN uh, network, and um, he was saying that... Uh, we couldn't oppose uh, the communists or try to stand up for good uh, in Central America where they were having these revolutions because we had a revolution of our own. And he didn't seem to see any distinction between a good revolution, such as we had in the United States, and a bad revolution, such as the one in Nicaragua uh, where the communists took uh, over by force, and talked about uh, right-wing dictatorships uh, in Central America, implying that there was one in El Salvador, and completely ignoring the fact that they had a general election in which the current uh, regime was overwhelmingly voted into office, uh, and the people went to the polls in spite of actual and, uh, and potential threats of uh, violence and death. So when we uh, can't even see the distinction between good and evil, or where even a, uh, uh, how should I say this without being uncharitable, a, uh, a person associated with the church <laughs> uh, who was a professor at Harvard Divinity School would go on uh, CBS Morning Show a few months ago and uh, say that Ronald Reagan was wrong, speaking to the, I think, National Association of Evangelicals, uh, pointing out that the uh, communist regime in Russia was uh, evil and that it had to be opposed. And this person, uh, I won't name him, was saying uh, that, uh, you know, who can tell what's evil? We have to be charitable and, uh, and have tolerance for people of different uh, persuasions. I mean, this is the grossest idiocy that I've ever seen. And uh, I noticed that uh, the uh, gentleman who was the co-anchor on the CBS morning show was going overboard to give this fellow plenty of time, to give him leading questions, uh, to take maybe five minutes uh, with him, whereas uh, someone with an opposing view, which they didn't even bother to put on, might have gotten 15 or 30 seconds. So it's not even the liberal or leftist bias of the press, I think, that we should be concerned about and try to change, uh, but also uh, their incompetence, because I'm sure that this... A particular anchor person uh, just doesn't know uh, of what he speaks and uh, uh, probably hasn't done any studying in this area even though he gives the appearance and uh, pretends uh, to be knowledgeable enough at least to question the guest. Mm -hmm. I was interviewed once by a religion editor of a major newspaper who was similarly sure that no one could say what was right and wrong, but a little later he was very sure that Jerry Falwell was all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, that reminds me of the uh, evolutionist. The, uh, the uh, scientific methodology uh, does prove up the Bible. It doesn't prove up evolution, and yet they stick with evolution and stick with the scientific methodology. Uh, and they can't see their own, uh, the internal inconsistency of their own position. Well, John, uh, we're going to have to wind this uh, particular easy chair uh, up now. But I think what we'll do is to continue for another hour and make it our easy chair number 51. 
and give you an opportunity to go into some other subjects. How people can protect themselves economically. How to prepare for what's coming. Because uh, preparation for the future is a must. Absolutely. Uh, I've taught this in my investment seminars, which are entitled Investment Strategy from a Political Perspective for the last uh, three years or so. And I guess, again, maybe it's an old military principle, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Yes. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening in. And uh, two weeks from now, you'll hear the rest of what we have to say here. Thank you and goodbye.